That lady freaked me out, and I wasn't going to be fooled by her. I couldn't figure out how nobody else was noticing this and didn't understand why nobody else cared. A good story takes us on a journey. It reminds us of where we've been and shows us where we could go. A good story makes us feel and inspires us to act. Welcome to the Good Story Podcast, where everyday stories that make you laugh, cry, or feel slightly uncomfortable will leave you inspired as Kirsten King tells true stories and teaches truth. It was a case of mistaken identity, really. Someone pretending to be someone I was sure they were not. And I wasn't going to fall for it. It was scary. I felt anxious and uncomfortable and vulnerable. And I cried. I was less than a handful of years old and nobody believed me. But before I get to that, I want to address something else. I want to talk about true identity. I want to, in fact, talk about my true identity, my ultimate identity. I identify as this more than I do as my parents' daughter or my sister's and brother's sister or Kenny's wife or Kenny, Danny, Greta, and Tim's mom or Anna and Alex and Tamara's mother-in-law or Juliet Anderson, Cohen, Soren, and Flynn's nana. (laughs) I identify as this more than I do as Kirsten King, the youth leader or speaker or neighbor, or your friend even. Above all of those identities, which are accurate, I choose to identify myself as Christian. And ironically enough, that's actually what my name means, Kirsten Joy, Christian Joy. What does that mean, though? What does it mean to be Christian? I want to spend some time thinking about that today before I tell you about the woman I met claiming to be someone I was certain she was not. Christian, as a word, occurs only three times in the New Testament. The first mention is in Acts chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, where we read, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. I'm going to stop there, actually. I'll read verse 26 in a second. How did Barnabas know to go to Tarsus to look for Saul? Do you see now why it was important for us to look at Saul's life last week from Acts chapter 9? We need to place these verses and these passages in context. We traced Saul's journey from Pharisee in Jerusalem, sent to Damascus with the approval and power of the chief priests behind him, to go round up followers of Jesus with the intent to have them persecuted or killed. On the way, he had a Damascus Road experience. (laughs) In fact, he had the Damascus Road experience to which all others are compared to this day. He was changed. He was blinded by a light and spoken to by Jesus. Three days later, he met Ananias, regained his sight, and began his life as a new man in Christ, following Christ, knowing that he was chosen as an instrument by God to proclaim his name among the Gentiles and to the people of Israel. He stayed in Damascus preaching about and proving that, according to the scriptures, Jesus was exactly who he said he was, the Christ, the Messiah, the one who not only came to save, but accomplished that work on the cross. Saul preached until those 
opposed to this message of truth, conspired to kill him, at which time the believers led him down in a basket through an opening in the wall. Saul, at that point, traveled back to Jerusalem, intending to connect with the apostles there and continue to preach the good news of Jesus, which he did. He hit a little snafu with the apostles until Barnabas came and vouched for him. But then he did move about freely in the name of the Lord until again people decide to kill him. At which point he went to the port city of Caesarea and got on a ship bound for his hometown of Tarsus. And there he stayed, presumably, absolutely still preaching the good news of Jesus. He stayed there until Barnabas went and got him. Let's get back now again to where we started in Acts chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. He finds him and he brings him to this place, to this city, to Antioch, so that together the two of them could stay for a full year teaching great numbers of people. Is anyone curious about Antioch in Syria? There's actually a number of Antiochs in old times. It was a popular name for a city, which isn't surprising. They're all named after King Antiochus. I actually looked up the most popular city name in the United States, just because I was curious. And coming in first was Washington. So Antioch, a number of Antiochs named after King Antiochus, Washington in the United States, named after, yes, you got it, our first president, Washington. It had 88 mentions. Now just pause for a minute, right? There are 88 cities with a name coming in first, Washington, which I'm thinking this is crazy because we only have 50 states. So I was like, wait, what on earth? So I did some more digging. Washington, then, oh, Port Washington, Washington Mills, Washington on the Brazos, etc. <laughs> Antioch in Syria was an important port on the river. In Paul's day, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Rome, of course, was largest, and Alexandria was second. Also coming in as a popular city name in the United States, I might add, if you care. I think there was a dozen of those. Antioch had a large colony of, man, now my mind's like going with all the other names. Springfield. <laughs> okay, there, there is a lot. You can just, you Franklin. Ah, okay. You can look at those later. Google that. All right. Antioch had a large colony of expatriate Jews living among the mostly non-Jewish population. Josephus, who was a Jew Jewish historian, said that there were more Jews living in Antioch during the time of Paul than in any other city of the world outside of Judea. It was a thriving city. It had marble streets. It had a colonnade that stretched from one end of the city to the other. Commerce was buzzing. There was many people there coming and going. There was a man named uh, Nicholas who was from there. He was one of the men that was chosen by the disciples to distribute food to the poor believers in Jerusalem in Acts 6. They mentioned Nicholas from Antioch. 
Also, he probably went back to this Antioch after Stephen was martyred and the persecution of believers increased and they said people scattered. So you see here now, I just want us to picture Antioch is this vibrant city where both Jews and Gentiles were present. And now a new sort of population identity was established here as well. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. This went beyond heritage. This was above Jewishnessness or Greekness. This was an identity superseding all identities, Jews and Gentiles alike who believed in Jesus, who called on the name of the Lord, were called Christians. These followers of Jesus at Antioch, these Christians at Antioch, were comprised of believers that were there before Barnabas went and got Saul, and also the many new converts that were there as a result of their teachings for that year. Scripture says this group of people was growing in number, and this growing group of people were called Christians. They didn't name themselves that. It was a label given to them. It was an identifying title that was actually given to make fun of them. It was meant to be derogatory, to ridicule them. Ooh, check out the Christians. Oh, hey, Christians. Or even more literally, ah, oh, that group of little Christs doing whatever he said to do, believing whatever he taught. So it was meant to be derogatory at first. The second time we see the word Christian, it's not necessarily used in a negative or positive light, but it's a significance reference because it's an indication that the word was gaining widespread attention. People are starting to know what this Christian was. The second reference is found in Acts chapter 16. In verse 28, Paul's a prisoner and he's brought before King Agrippa and he has to testify before him. And in his testimony, Paul begins telling him about his experience on the road to Damascus. We're like old news. We know about that. During his testimony, while he's talking, Festus, who was the procreator in Judea, he's listening in. Festus was that guy. He interrupts Paul. You're crazy. You're out of your mind, he says. <laughs> so there's that. Paul addresses this claim. He's like, I'm not crazy, nor am I insane. And he keeps on talking. He turns back, focuses attention on King Agrippa, and he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And then King Agrippa says to Paul, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? King Agrippa knew of this group of people who believed not only in the prophets, but that the prophetic writings were realized in the person of Jesus and that those who believe this were called Christians. I love Paul's response here. He says, to the question, right? King Agrippa says, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul says, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am. Except for the chains. <laughs> Quick little aside. I want you to become what I am. What is that? A follower of Christ, a Christian. Yes, I would want you to become what I am, except for, you know, these chains. Eventually, as the word Christian gained more widespread attention and use, Paul and the other followers of Jesus decided being known as a Christian was going to be a mark of honor and not a point of shame. We know this because the third and final time Christian is mentioned in the New Testament is in 1 Peter 4.16. Here, the Apostle Peter is writing to believers who are scattered all over the known world. And he says this, 
If anyone suffers as a Christian, let them not be ashamed, but let them glorify God on this behalf. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed to suffer as a Christian. Don't be ashamed to be called a Christian, to be known as a Christian, to identify with Christ. Know that this is something that brings glory to God. Okay, I am a Christian. Are you? <laughs> what does that mean? Are you a Christian because you were born in, in a home where people talked about God? Are we a Christian because of what country we live in? Whatever country that is? Are we a Christian because we go to church? Are we a Christian because we do good stuff? According to what Jesus says, what Jesus taught, and what was explained to the apostles, what was made clear to Saul, Paul, according to that, this is what it means to be a Christian. It means we have to believe the truth of this. This is in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Second, we don't just believe this in our mind, but we stake our lives on it. We give our lives to this. We believe that Jesus' death on the cross wasn't for just the sins of the world. It was for our sins. It was for my sin. We believe that he was raised again. We believe he offers us forgiveness freely, and we, in turn, live our lives following him. We know that as Christians, when we die, we can be assured that the price Jesus paid on the cross, the death that he died, that he didn't deserve to die because he never sinned, that this death is exactly what is needed for us to be able to live forever in heaven. This is what I believe. And as long as I am on this earth, I don't want to be guilty of mistaken identity. Is she a Christian or is she not? I don't want to be to identify personally as a follower of Jesus, but confuse people as they look at my life. I don't want that to be in question. I want it to be obvious more obvious, in fact, than the identity of the woman I met many years ago. Our family was going to take what I considered at that age a trip to Minneapolis, which honestly is ridiculous because I lived in St. Paul. It's just that my parents never went there unless it was the rare occasion that we were going to go out to eat at the alumni club at the top of the IDS building. But if I remember rightly, and I do, that building hadn't even been finished yet at the time of this story. So our trip to Minneapolis was quite exciting. It was December. We were going to go look at the Christmas windows at Dayton's. We were going to also look at the amazingly magical Christmas display on the eighth floor inside the store. I don't remember who all was invited to this event. I'm not even sure how old I was exactly. But I am nearly certain I was either a couple of months from turning three or a couple of months from turning four. And yes, I do remember this, not just because somebody told me. I remember it clearly. I can feel it still. We got all dressed up at home. We had our hair curled, of course, for this event. Our nails were polished. We had on our Sunday best, our Sunday shoes, our Christmas coats. I am pretty certain that we look like we stepped right out of a classic Christmas card. Once we got downtown and parked, we climbed out of the cars and started walking to the store. 
We had to kind of divide our, ourselves up. There was a lot of people there. I'm not entirely sure who all was there. I just know there was a lot of people. I remember I was looking around for my mom when this other lady, who apparently had showed up in the middle of the night while I was sleeping, looked down at me and said, you need to hold my hand. She was bossy and she looked scary. I hadn't seen her before. I wasn't sure who she was. I said, no, I don't and I won't. I looked for my mom and I didn't find her, but I did find my dad. So I ran up to him. I grabbed onto the side of his pants by his knee and started walking in step with him, glancing occasionally over my shoulder at this scary woman and giving her a glare, letting her know, uh-uh, nope, not holding your hand. We got inside the store and wandered around the mannequins and massive people making our way to the escalators. While we waited for our turn to ascend, my mom grabbed my little sister's hand and I felt my hand being grabbed as well. I looked up and sure enough, it was this strange, scary woman. I ripped my hand away and started to cry. My mom looked at me and asked me what was wrong. I remember telling her, that crabby lady is grabbing my hand. My mom looked scared too, I thought. But then I heard her say as the stairs were climbing, Hold on. She turned the other way, which was perfect, because I just held my hand in a fist and I glared up at this woman, not touching her. We got off on that floor and turned right around just to get onto another escalator. This woman tried to break down my defenses and tried to trick me into holding her hand again. This time, instead of demanding it, she said, Kirsten Joy, you need to hold my hand. I'm your grandma. I didn't know who she thought she was kidding, but she was wrong. I already had a grandma, and she was on the escalator too, by my sister Mari. This imposter showing up in the middle of the night while I'm sleeping was not going to trick me. I looked up at her and I screamed, you're not my real grandma. I don't know who you are. And you know what was weird? After I yelled this, instead of looking the other way or pushing me aside or looking like she got found out, she instead looked down at me and laughed and laughed and laughed until her crinkly eyes teared up. And then she said, real quiet, did you know that some children have more than one grandma? That lady over there is your grandma Ram. She's your mom's mom. I'm your grandma Broman. I'm your dad's mom. I am your real grandma. And I love you. She then said, Instead of me holding your hand, if you'd like to, you can hold mine. That sounded like a much better idea to me. And so I did. <laughs> As the years went by, until she passed away, my grandma continued to sign all my birthday cards. Love, your real grandma, Roman. She won me over. <laughs> I could talk on and on about her, and I'm thinking I might just do that on a different episode. But here's the deal. 
That's exactly what we should be like as Christians. Well, somebody might be questioning our identity for whatever that reason. We need our words and our behavior to line up. We need to speak with kindness. We need to reach out even when somebody is pushing away. We need our words and our behaviors to line up with Christ's. What are real Christians like? They're like Christ. What was Christ like? He loved. He loved first. When we pushed him away, he loved. When we questioned his authority, he loved. He loved not only you, not only me. He loved the world. He loved the outcast. Jesus loved the one the world called unworthy. He loved the sick, the ones the world called untouchable. He loved the disenfranchised and the ignored, the ones the world call unworthy. He loved the unseen and underappreciated. He loved and he loved and he loved and he continued to love and he continues to do so. His love led him to the cross and kept him there. His love defeated death and offered salvation to those who believe in him. And his love is our mandate. He said so in John chapter 13. Love one another as I have loved you. This is the mark of a believer, the love we have for one another. If we are followers of Christ, we love because Christ is walking in love. We cannot follow him and not love. I've heard some make the argument that this command is actually just for us to love believers, not others. I disagree. Here's why. Under the Mosaic Law, Leviticus 19, 18, the one that these disciples would have been familiar with, the one where Jesus says, a new command I give you. He's saying in John 13, a new command I give you, love one another. Is, and they're like, wait, no, we've heard this command before. Leviticus 19, 18, we know about loving one another. But he's saying it's new. Why is it new? As I have loved you, what does this mean? By the time that Jesus was on earth, the Jewish religious leaders had morphed this command to love one another to love your neighbor as yourself, this command to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, the Jewish religious leaders had morphed this command and were teaching that the terms friend and neighbor applied only to Jews. Non-Jews were to be, in their words, hated. Jesus explained the proper application of this law when he told the story of what we now call the Good Samaritan, when the Samaritan helped the Jew. Love went beyond this. Our neighbor is not just one of our own race or nationality or country. Instead, our love should extend beyond that, like Christ's love did for us. He loved us before we loved him. 1 John 4, 19-21 says, We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God Whoever claims, oh, yes, I'm a Christian, yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love others. 1 John 3, 16 to 18 says this. This is how we know what love is. You might be sitting here going, well, okay, how do I love? How do I do that? Love others. What does that look like? 
Draw me a map. Show me. 1 John 3, 16 to 18 does. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees somebody in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let's not just love with words or speeches, but with actions and in truth. Let's love like that. Let's identify as Christians by our love, not by what we shout, but by who we are, by speaking the truth in love. Just like my grandma invited me to hold her hand and introduced herself gently. Do this. Reach out kindly. Introduce ourselves gently. And don't hide the fact that we're a follower of Christ. Point to him. I don't want to be known as selfless. I want to be selfless. I don't want to be known as the person who shares. I want to share. I don't want to be known as the person who loves. I want to love. I want to be known as a Christian who is only able to be selfless and to share and to love because there was one who first loved me. And I want everyone to meet him and to be loved by him and to love one another with the love that they've been given. Oh, Lord God, burn in our hearts the love that you have for us. And let us pour that out unto everyone we meet. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.